Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome on today's show. We have Rupert Isaacson. He is a journalist, humanitarian worker for the Bushmen and had a child called Reuben who he discovered later that had autism. They decided, him and his family, to go to see the ranger people in Mongolia to see if they could provide some sort of healing for him and his family. Hello Rupert and welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me on. Excellent. When did you discover uh, being a journalist? Um, I first started writing for small publications when I was about 21 and just stayed with it ever since. It's in, in the blood. My, both my grandparents were journalists. Are you British or South African? I'm a hybrid of the two. Um, my, I was born in the UK, but my sister and I were the first ones born back in Europe in about 200 years in the family. Um, we're very South African and Zimbabwean in the family, so we're, we're a funny hybrid. <laughs> so when you started writing as a journalist, what kind of came to mind for you? Well, I always just followed my interests. So I was always interested in the environment. I was always interested in indigenous peoples. I was always interested in equestrianism because that's what I grew up with. So I tended to follow those um, types of stories. And uh, that's how I sort of got into the into the industry. Did you write it for a young age or did you take it up in your teens? Um, I began probably at about 16. And what attracted you to horses? Um, again, it's in the blood. Um, a, a lot of my uh, forebears had been cavalrymen and um, it skipped the generation of my parents, but it, it came out in me pretty strongly, it's, you know. People who are horse people, it's, it's a compulsion. And I definitely have that compulsion. Excellent. And is there a particular style of, of horse you like riding on? Um, well, yeah. Um, I 
with hunting and eventing, but now I ride mostly classical dressage. I still jump. And we have a way of working with autistic children called Horseboy Method, which obviously we do a lot of as well. You did work, you made humanitarian work for the Bushmen people. Explain that to us. Yeah, well, you remember my family comes from Africa um, and I had an interest in the environment and indigenous peoples. So I um, found out back in the 90s that um, there was a group of Bushmen hunter-gatherers in South Africa who had been living by the side of the road for about 20 years after being kicked out of what's now a large national park under apartheid and they were asking for their land back and I just had this gut feeling about the story and I also had this gut feeling that I would have a family connection to the story because I have a lot of family in that area and not all of my family is white. I found out subsequently that not only did I have a family connection, I was also actually related to these people. So then it became quite personal. And I became um, not just a journalist, but also an advocate. And um, to cut a long story short, we helped first that group of Bushmen in South Africa and then a second group in Botswana win two very large land claims to get their ancestral lands back. How did you feel working with these people? Um, oh, it's a real privilege. Hunting and gathering peoples are the most functional people you ever meet much more functional than any farming or herding people, which includes ourselves. <laughs> um, they have a really effective means of controlling their, let's say, their base urges. They don't uh, make war. Gender equality is built into the culture. Um, children have rights, that sort of thing. So as a people, it's really educational and quite humbling to be around them. Do you still keep contact with some of the people you worked with? I do indeed. In fact, in 2008, after Mongolia, I took my son to see um, the Bushman for Hewang and I, I maintain quite close connections with them, yeah. Tell us how you and your wife met. I met my wife in India. Um, I was there writing a guidebook. She was there doing research for her PhD and we met and that was it. And uh, we took off adventuring very quickly into the rainforests of southern India. And then she came back to live in England and then in Africa with me. And then I went to live in America. And uh, that's how I ended up here. When was Ruben born? Uh, it's Rowan, actually. R-O-W-A-N, oh. Rowan. My apologies. No worries. Um, he was born in 2001. When did you guys discover that he had forms of autism? Um, it became very clear at about 18 months. And by two, just after two, we had the diagnosis. How did it feel as a, as a parent hearing this for the first time? Not good. You know, people, the professionals in the field, tell you nothing good about autism. Every, everything is defined by negative words. Um, deficit, disorder, dysfunction, etc., you know, his behaviours at the time were incredibly difficult. But I am a journalist, and so for me, I always ask, well, what's the other side of the story? So I was getting this overwhelmingly negative view, but I thought, well, what I need to do is talk to some adult autists who, who've been successful. Where do I find them? So the obvious person was somebody called Dr. Temple Grandin, 
probably the world's most famous autistic person. She is a best-selling author. She is a professor of animal sciences at Colorado State University. She's um, revolutionized the livestock slaughter industry, oddly enough, in the U.S., by making it less stressful for the animals going through. So she's a really interesting woman. And when she was three, she was rocking in a corner, wiping her poo on the walls, non-verbal, and uh, her dad was going to institutionalize her. Her mother thought, no, there's a, an intellect in there I know, and we just have to find it. So I went to talk to her, and I said, how does my son become you? And she said, oh, it's quite simple, actually. You have to follow his interests, like really follow his interests and his obsessions, even and especially the ones you don't really like. You have to do it outside in nature as much as you can because there's no bad sensory triggers that, which get in the way of learning and cause the meltdowns. And you need to let him move, move, move because um, most uh, people on the spectrum are what you call kinetic learners. They learn while moving. So I said thanks very much and I got home and I found the behavioral therapists that were working with my son were not doing these things. I said, well, listen, I just went to speak with the world's most successful autistic person and she tells me to do the opposite of what you're doing. What about that? And I got immediately um, a very aggressive pushback. Again, the journalist in me smelt a rat thinking, well, the only reason people get aggressive is when they're afraid. So the question is, what are they afraid of? They must be afraid at some level that their thing doesn't work. So I took this decision to fire them, do what Temple Grandin told me to do and follow my son. And that's how the whole adventure began. Did you find something similar to that experience through different therapies that you've tried? So what Dr. Temple Grandin was talking about? Yeah. No, almost none. Um, I would say almost none of the therapies do that. And the, the other problem with a lot of the therapies is that they are aimed basically at making people sort of non-autistic. Instead of looking at what are the gifts of autism, there are many gifts of autism. And how do we maximize those gifts? Uh, while, of course, teaching people how to navigate the neurotypical world, but at the same time, you know, how do we just um, really celebrate who they are? Again, that was something that hit very home to me because... Meeting Temple Grandin, I could see that, you know, her obsessive side, her extraordinary memory, her ability to focus, these were things that had really served her well in her life. And it surprised me that none of the people that I was talking to in the therapy world were really concerned with this. They, they were all viewing the whole thing as, as a real negative. And I, I, I thought, well, that was a mistake. Did you go horse riding with him at that time, or is this before he met Betsy, the horse? This is before he met Betsy, and it's ironic, actually, um, because I'm such an obsessive horse guy, I was actually keeping Rowan away from horses because I thought he wasn't safe around them. Uh, but because I was following my son, literally physically, out of the door, into the woods, into the fields, he then met, that's how he met, my neighbour's mare, Betsy. And that's how the whole horse boy adventure got going. And when you saw this happening as a horse, not as yourself, what was going through her head? Well, what was interesting to me was um, when she met him, he went running towards her before I could grab him and threw himself under her hooves. And not just her hooves, um, the hooves of the 
extraordinary way. She um, very, very, very gently and slowly pushed the other horses off and then bent her head to him and began to lick and chew and half close the eye. And these are acceptance submission gestures. There are techniques you can use as a horse trainer to get a horse to do this, sort of accept you in this way. A bit like a dog showing its belly, really. But I hadn't seen a horse spontaneously offer this before. So I realized I was seeing something really extraordinary. And, um, of course, I followed it. Before we um, talk about the trip to Mongolia um, and before the horse boy, what you experience and watching th- with the horse Betsy, is this common through the training or is this just um, something the horse innately did to, to your son? Yeah, this was, this was completely spontaneous. Okay, and after that experience, what, what did you um, do to enhance his relaxation through the horses and nature? Well, what he wanted to do was go back and back to Betsy. And so he was sort of down next to her with his arms up, jumping up and down, sort of communicating that he wanted to lay on her. So I would let him do that. I would pick him up and lay him on her back and keep a hand on him while she grazed. I knew she, I knew the mare. I knew she was a quiet, older mare. And um, when he was laying on her body to body like that, um, all of his stimming, the self-stimulatory activity, the rocking, the flapping, all of that stuff that we associate with autism, all of that fell away. And I had a very different child. And this was interesting. I had no idea why at this point, but it was, you know, I couldn't deny it. It was something working. Then um, shortly after that, I thought I should try riding with him. And as you know, in England and Ireland and places such, we don't start children riding in the saddle with us because the saddles we use... Um, don't have room for two. But I live in Texas, and the big Western saddles that a lot of people use here, it's quite easy to put a a young child in front of you. So I did that, and um, that's when we got our first verbal, words, our first expressive language that first day that I rode with him. And what did he say on that day? We were riding down towards a pond, and a big blue heron got up and flapped away, and he said, heron. I didn't know he knew that word. And I thought, okay. Um, so I started giving him choices left, right, you know, faster, slower. And he began taking them. He was just engaged in a way that was completely different. And I noticed very quickly that I got more results at the trot than at the walk and more results at the canter than at the trot. And I didn't know why at this point, but I could just observe that it would happen. So that this was oddly enough the same week that my son's speech therapist had given up on him. So this was something miraculous. He was speaking. And so from that point, we really began to literally live together in the saddle, three to five hours a day, riding from place to place. And he didn't just learn to speak, his language really came, but he also learned to read. I I would paint letters on trees, put them together, you know, I would get my... And he learned numbers. I would get my friends and family to line up and we'd take one away, add one, divide them up, multiply them, make it funny. And he said he became, in over the next two and a half to three years, not just verbal, but literate and numerate. And this was something really extraordinary, all through the horse. And as a father hearing a son that couldn't speak for a period of time and hearing his first word, how does that feel? Oh, it's miraculous. Miraculous. 
as if the, the sky is passing and the hand of God reaches down. When you were teaching him how to write, read through the horse, did you feel like um, you were accomplishing grounds that weren't through the, the therapist that you were working with? Oh, yeah. No, there's no, there's no way that would have gotten... I mean, remember, um, the, the speech therapist gave up on him the first week that, uh, the week that I first rode with him, that he said his first words. The therapist couldn't really get anything from him. But on the horse, he, he would do all sorts of things. What made you decide to go to Mongolia? Okay, well, remember um, my background with indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. And um, the same year that Rowan was diagnosed and met Betsy, it was 2004, I also had to um, bring a delegation of Kalahari Bushmen to the United Nations and the U.S. State Department. And um, some of the guys on that delegation were trained healers in their culture. They met Rowan. They offered to do some quote-unquote work on him. To my amazement, even though I had seen a lot of this healing at work before, he really did begin to lose some of his more obsessive symptoms. So for me, it was a fairly logical thing to think, well, radical and positive reaction to the horse, radical and positive reaction to this type of healer. Is there a place on the planet that combines those two things? Not America, not Africa, that's not a horse culture. Where does the horse come from? Equus Kabbalus, as we know it, evolved in Mongolia. And strong system of shamanism there. The word, in fact, shaman means he who knows is a South Siberian word from that region. Gut feeling, gotta go. So I presented the idea to my wife and she um, rather understandably said, that's a really terrible idea. Our lives are already so stressful, you know, just going to the supermarket is so stressful. Rupert Logic said, yeah, but because going to the supermarket is so stressful, we actually might as well go to Mongolia because frankly, we are going to Mongolia every day in our own living room. And uh, eventually we went and we rode from shaman to shaman, from healer to healer across that incredible landscape there over about a month. And um, although he went to Mongolia autistic and he came back autistic, his three key dysfunctions, his incontinence, his tantruming, and his inability to make friends, these things, these three things he left behind him in Mongolia. Was this your goal to achieve this or were you just going for an adventure to uh, see what you could find? I would say by that time more, more the latter. Um, I had lost any desire for Rowan to no longer be autistic. I, I was realizing that autism came with many gifts. But obviously I did want him to be able to get through those dysfunctions because those get in the way of quality of life. But I was pretty astonished at the sweeping nature of the healing. I wasn't really prepared for that. And I had also thought, well, if nothing happens, at least it's proof that autism, the diagnosis of autism doesn't have to prevent a family from having an incredible adventure together like that. But of course, in fact, it was almost miraculous. And um, we sort of kept going that way ever since. Through that month when you were going from shaman to shaman, were you kind of seeing slow, subtle adjustments or after you met um, the head chief, that's when it all changed? Um, it was after really each ritual, the first 
so many happened outside of Lambertar, the, the capital. And there were nine shamans who'd come in from all over the country to, to perform the healing. In the middle of that healing, Rowan turned to this little boy who was there as part of the group and held out his arms and hugged him and said, Mongolian brother. And Rowan had never done this before. He'd never reached out to another child. He'd only ever done what you call parallel play, where you, an autistic person will play in the same room as a child, but they won't interact. And that child, Thomas, came along on the journey um, with us, with his father, Tulga. That friendship really blossomed. It was Rowan's first friendship, and it was something very beautiful to see. Um, but then the really big further changes happened when we got up into Siberia. The southern edges of Siberia come down into Mongolia. The grasslands give way to the forested mountains. And that's where the reindeer people live, who are... It's something, an extraordinary culture, people who live with and live on reindeer. They even ride reindeer rather than horses. It's something really extraordinary. So there, the shaman of the reindeer people, a guy called Ghost, said two things. He said, the stuff that really drives you crazy, um, the incontinence, the tantruming, etc. These will leave like now, like tomorrow. This was after three days of ceremony. Skeptical, obviously. Not 27 hours after we came down that mountain, Rowan did his first intentional poo and cleaned himself. Extraordinary. So I like watching England win the World Cup, <laughs> which will never happen, but, you know, it was better. There's two weeks that it took us to get from that very remote part of Mongolia back to our house in Texas. I think we counted six tantrums of any note, um, whereas normally that would have been a day's worth or maybe even half a day on a bad day. And by the time we got back, they were really gone. So um, it was truly an, ex you know, an extraordinary thing. But the second thing that Ghost said was he said to confirm the healing, to fix the healing, to make sure the healing doesn't go away, you must do three more journeys to, to the shamans. And he said, you don't have to come to me up here in Siberia because I realize that this is very remote and difficult to get to. But, you know, he, I know he, he chatted to me and he knew that I had relationships with the Bushmen and so on. He said, you know, go there, anywhere there's good shamans, but make sure you do that every year for the next three years. So I did. Um, and that's the story. So the, the horse boy is the story of um, our journey to Mongolia and the lead up to it and what happened there. But then we published a subsequent book called The Long Ride Home about our three subsequent journeys, one in um, the Bushman in Namibia in southwest Africa, one in Australia with an Aboriginal shaman in the Daintree rainforest in the north, tropical north, and finally um, on the Navajo reservation right here in the US. When you were doing these three separate rituals after the one in Mongolia, did you still see changes happening or were they... Yeah. Massive changes. So after the healings in um, Africa, what came right after that, literally right after that, was this explosion in mathematics, which had just never been there before. Then in Australia, what came literally the day after the, the rituals ended was what psychologists 
bit mind and false belief is when I thought other people think differently to you, you have and you have to adjust your behavior accordingly. And this is something which for autistic people typically only comes very, very late, if ever. But in normal people, it comes at about three. He by then was, what, seven? And it kicked in almost immediately afterwards. He, he played his first practical joke on me. My wife, who is a professor of developmental psychology at the University of Texas, so she sort of obviously would recognize such things, immediately went, wow, that's incredible. You know, he's, he's just achieved theory of mind. Um, and then finally, on the Navajo Reservation, you know, what I had really wanted for years by that point was proper, easy conversation, because although Rowan was um, verbal, fully verbal by this point, it was still a very scripted way of talking. But as we were driving out from the Navajo Reservation, again, after three days, it's always three days of ceremony, we were driving out under a mountain which marks the eastern edge of the Navajo Reservation in New Mexico, Mount Taylor. And rather like Mount Kilimanjaro, it's a very beautiful thing. It hangs, the snow cap that hangs in the air above the desert. So you just sort of see this, it looks like the snow cap is hanging by itself in midair. But because it's America, of course, underneath it, what do you have but a casino, a McDonald's and a truck stop? Rowan wanted to go in the McDonald's. I didn't really want him to eat the junk food. He had a bit of a tantrum. I got grumpy too. And I, my sort of inner three-year-old came out. And I'm like, fine, just be grumpy then. You know, just spoil the whole day, blah, blah, blah. And from the back seat comes this voice and he says, Dad, I'm not being grumpy. I'm just telling you what drink I want. And literally, we just had to drive onto the hard shoulder of the motorway. This was so shocking. Like, who, who is this child in the back? And from then on, proper conversation. Really extraordinary. How did your wife um, take all this, Ruben, with um, all these changes happening? Well, I think by then, even though she's a scientist, like all good scientists, she is very comfortable. I don't know. I observe that it, it's working, but I, can I explain how? No. Do I observe that it is? Yes. And um, she's quite comfortable with that that you can't explain everything scientifically in fact even a lot of science is not explainable rationally so she is a very open-minded person and um, again despite her sort of rigorous academic background well handsome as handsome does she, she saw she saw the changes what you know what can you say it was working how did the horse boy come come after? I know you went to Mongolia and you experienced what was happening um, in front of you, but how did you make this public where everyone could access it and experience something similar with horses? Okay, well, when I finished these journeys, I, I was always riding with Ron and always getting good results. And I noticed very quickly that the way I was doing it was very different to the normal therapeutic riding where you lead kids around on horses and often the results are not terribly radical. So I wondered, you know, is it just my son or is this a universal thing? I began to run small playdates for other families on the spectrum in my neighborhood and I noticed very quickly that riding with these kids, other kids, I got the same effect. It was pretty universal. And um, eventually, 
we realised that we could systemise this and we call it horse boy method. And um, horse boy method is now a therapeutic riding approach that's in about 13 or 14 countries, maybe more now actually. In Germany, it's a um, it's an official approach and it's very well represented in, in the UK, in Ireland, etc., etc. Um, and what it does is it sets up an environment with no bad sensory triggers, nothing that's going to get in the way of learning. So we tend to work outside rather than indoor arenas. And we work on the sensory issues of the child before we do anything. And we might do that on the horse or we might not do that on the horse, depending on what the child wants. Only then do we think about riding. And um, what we do is we ride with the child. And the reasons for that are because there are some differences in the autistic brain which respond really well to those rhythms and balances. And the differences are these. A lot of fMRI scans that have been done on adult autistic brains have shown an overdeveloped amygdala. And the amygdala is the part of your brain that governs fight, flight, and freeze. If you have an overactive amygdala, like an autistic person, you are producing way too much cortisol. Cortisol is the hormone of stress. And it narrows your focus. Its job is to actually kill neurons, kill brain cells, so that you're not distracted by your intellect or other things going on when there's a threat. So you only concentrate on that threat. And only when the threat is passed do you go back to a broader view. So if you have somebody who is constantly thinking that there's a threat and you put them into a situation with bad sensory triggers, which makes that even worse, you're not going to get very far. But if you can put them in a position where their hips are being rocked in rhythm, then they will produce the opposite. They will produce a hormone called oxytocin. And oxytocin is the hormone not just of happiness, and it's the antidote to cortisol, but it's the hormone of communication. It makes us want to communicate. And so if you ride with the child, you can put the horse into a balance, a better balance than if you lead the horse by the head to get this hip-rocking effect. And then you also hold the child around the middle, which gives them deep pressure, which a lot of people on the spectrum really like. And then... Finally, you're feeding information into their ear. You're not this challenging frontal gaze, which a lot of therapists do. They'll sit across, you know, a table from a, an autistic person, etc. And that really is perceived as a threat, often, particularly by the younger kids. You take that out of the picture, you just start a voice in the ear, feeding in this information as you go, filling the child with oxytocin. And then from there, we play rule-based games, tag, hide-and-seek, etc., which are the ways children naturally pattern their brains, but which people, kids on the autism spectrum, again, typically don't get to do, which is why often their brain development is, you know, is irregular. And then from there, we uh, actually teach academics. We will teach anything from the most basic communication right through math, history, science, etc. Then we do it in French, you know, why not? And then finally, the sixth, stage is getting the child to teach us about what interests them and at that point they're usually in early adolescence and they're ready to come into the program as volunteers and mentors for younger kids coming up so that's horse boy method and then because we can get this 
same hip-blocking effect without the bad sensory triggers, also not using the horse. And because not all kids are motivated to get on the horse, in fact, some of them are very unmotivated to get on the horse, find, find the horse too intimidating, etc. We realized that we could use play equipment for the same effects. And um, so we formulated something called movement method, which we now teach to therapists, parents, school teachers, etc. not just for autism, but also for um, ADD, ADHD, dyslexia, etc. And in fact, even general ed, pretty much any person is going to respond better to things that are learned in movement than making them sit at a desk. So we've homeschooled Rowan. He's now 14 since he was five. And he's at least two grades ahead. And um, we teach many schools and homeschoolers as well around the world how to do this. So it's really gone an, a, an extraordinary distance from these playdates in my backyard and our own first attempts at homeschooling to these two methods, horseboy method and movement method, which are now international. When you say the word spectrum, what do you mean? The spectrum is another word for autism because there's many different types of autism. You know, Asperger's syndrome, Rett syndrome, classic autism, pervasive development disorder, PDD, um, and they all sit in slightly different um, cognitive areas. But the autism spectrum isn't just a spectrum. It's also a continuum, meaning that the child can really achieve a lot of development and growth, and the adult too, um, but with the right interventions and the right environment, the environment is very important, the child can really get towards a high level of functionality, even if they start very dysfunctional. So it's not just a spectrum, it is also a continuum. And you said, you just said their environment, so what's the environment like inside the house um, with autism? Your ideal interior environment should have a minimum of non-natural objects. And the lighting is very important. So you shouldn't use fluorescent strip lights, for example. Those are known bad sensory triggers for um, the meltdowns. A lot of kids on the spectrum can perceive the flickering at 60 times a second, which neurotypical people do not see. We, We blank it out will be frequently seen by kids on the spectrum a bit like a strobe and it can completely freak them out. Bad smells like industrial cleaning solvents, so you should use the eco stuff. It can also trigger them cigarette smoke, perfume, anything like that. Then you also want to have small animals if you can, because a lot of kids will socialize first through animals and then through humans, and this is particularly true of kids on the spectrum. So having a nice, big, calm dog is a really good idea. Bunny rabbits, a cat, you know. And you want a lot of natural objects, sensory natural objects. So wood, driftwood from the beach, river, smooth river stones, antler, bone, deer hide, that sort of thing. Natural um, stuff that the human brain and nervous system is actually pre-designed to develop through 
we're not really supposed to develop through plastics and screen time. That can come later. But kids that don't play in the dirt, their brains don't develop properly because um, we are designed to play in the dirt. We are hunting and gathering apes and um, our brains actually don't develop properly if we take those natural stimuli away, particularly in the very early years. So that would be the ideal environment. The symptoms that you guys experienced before going to Mongolia, is that common in all children that have autism? Okay, and um, do you still homeschool or is Rohan in mainstream education? No, uh, we still homeschool. Um, the mainstream education that's available to us in rural Texas is really not very good for special needs. And we've learned to be so effective at um, home education that really, why would we change now? That said, if Rowan were to decide that he wanted to go to school, I wouldn't stand in his way. But he knows that children and adolescents are cruel, and he knows that he would probably get bullied in that environment. He's very self-aware, and so he rather is homeschooled here. And, you know, it's not homeschooling like a sort of isolation, you know, a parent and a child sitting in the house both sort of hacking through a math book together, both hating it. It's not like that at all. Um, we have a whole team and really effective people who each take a different role with him. Some are more science, some are more arts, etc. And they don't just work with him, they work with the other kids that come to our centre. So Rowan actually has access to a peer group anytime he wants it. But like a lot of kids on the spectrum, they frequently do not really crave that younger peer group because, again, they know that they're not terribly safe with that peer group. They often prefer the company of empathetic adults. And then as their peer group gets older and matures, then they can feel more safe with those people because, you know, the, the cruelties that school environments inevitably bring out, you know, um, neutralize and go away. Has Rowan said anything like he would like to do after he finishes his edu- education? It's quite interesting. He has an internship with a local road construction company that he's really obsessed with. And he's a flight safety inspector for them. He actually drives to the road construction sites and will check that all the protocols are being followed. In the meantime, we'll be teaching him through that. So, for example where we want to teach him radius and circumference and then how to calculate pi, for example. We would do it by measuring all the truck wheels and tires and finding out what's the average size and then from there the radius and diameter and so on and so on and so on. So we use that always as you know, anything that interests him as an educational um, opportunity. He has recently expressed an interest in writing stories. He came to me quite recently and started asking, how do you structure stories? So I started explaining to him how to do it, you know, a prologue in which you start at the crisis point of the action, leaves the reader on a cliffhanger so they want to know more. Act one, the call to adventure, the, the hero is reluctant, but eventually gets pulled in, you know, act two, it all goes wrong, and the hero or the protagonist 
has to change something fundamental in themselves in order to win through. Act three, it still goes wrong, but at the sort of moment of truth, the protagonist calls upon this thing which they learned, wins the quest, and uh, finally an epilogue in which you see them, the, the protagonist uh, leaving into a changed world. And, and this is really a sort of classic story structure. Um, almost any good film, book, etc., follows this story structure somehow. And so he's expressing a lot of interest in this, and I, I'm waiting to see whether this is actually going to materialize into writing, because it very much runs in the family. But as ever with these things, it's a mystery. The parents who are listening to this or are listening to other uh, interviews or content that you have published, should they follow the interest of their autistic child? Absolutely. Follow every interest, every obsession, especially the ones that you don't enjoy or the ones that you think are inappropriate. Follow them all. Ones that are really inappropriate, find a way of being humorous about them and use those as, as an opportunity to teach what is appropriate behavior. But follow, follow, follow. The reason is this. It's easy to forget what the word autism means. Auto is the Greek word for the self. Autism, therefore, is selfism, locked within the self. The difficulty is the relationship with the exterior world. So if you're dealing with an autistic child, you're dealing with a child who is not motivated to communicate at all. So if you pose things on them that they really don't want, and don't follow where they're going, where they already are, they will simply shut you out. It's not the same as having no structure and no discipline. I mean, we were always very clear on what was safe and what was not safe, for example, that sort of thing. And kids are, you know, even autistic kids, they're, they're not stupid. They, they have a good, pretty good sense of survival that way. So we would, of course, insist on behaviors that were safe rather than unsafe. But to take an authoritarian approach to parenting with an autistic child is going to lead to disaster, for sure. Uh, I've never seen it work, and I must have worked now with hundreds of thousands of children uh, around the world. Uh, our weekly outreach through Horseboy is 20,000 families a week, you know. But if you take the risk to really follow the child's interests, anything is possible, and you're going to be successful, yeah. With the work that you do and the outreach work you guys do, do you think autism is becoming more as a disability for the forefront with our environment? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're, we're experiencing a bit of a tsunami of autism at the moment, um, in the, in, particularly in the, in the industrialised world. When I was a boy, the diagnosis rate was two children in 10,000, and it's now one child in 68 over the age of eight. And some people think it's actually as high as one in 50, which is wow. a vast leap, and it's not getting any less. And it looks as though it's related to environmental factors such as toxins, heavy metals, plastics, even vaccines, etc. And so because of this vast increase in the numbers of kids on the spectrum, autism is definitely coming to the public focus in a way that it just wasn't 20 years ago. And looking back at your trip to Mongolia as a documentary, did you feel that um, it was a good idea to bring the camera crew with you to document it? Oh yeah, for sure, because anything that's documented always has value as a document, right? So, I mean, talking about a camera crew, what that crew really was was three friends of mine, you know, two of whom were good with the camera and one of whom was good with sound. Um, so it wasn't like a, a large crew or anything, it's just three guys who came with us. But 
the documentary that we put together, what was interesting is that those changes that I talked about that happened in Mongolia were all caught on camera. The chances of that happening are actually relatively slim. You can't film every moment of every day. So we were really lucky that we happened to have the cameras on when these big changes occurred. And um, so, yeah, as, as a document, it is, and the books as well, I guess my motivation was, again, back to when I first got the diagnosis, all the input I was getting about autism was overwhelmingly negative. And if somebody else had put out a story of autism as a great adventure, I think I would have despaired less in those early years. So I thought, well, if no one has done this, then perhaps I should do this. That was really the motivation. Do you think having an autistic child changed you in any way? Yeah, for sure. It makes you a better person. You know, it makes you a less selfish, more patient person. But it also makes you really appreciate the infinite miraculousness of the human heart. People on the spectrum, in general, have very quiet egos. It's one of their many gifts. Because they lack mirror neurons in the brain, um, they are not like neurotypical people governed by their ego. They have very quiet egos. You know, many of us neurotypicals are always battling with our 800-pound gorilla ego and often losing the battle. And we're always comparing ourselves to other people. You know, is he better looking than me? Does he make more money than me? Is he taller than me? Da, 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 da. You know, he's got a PhD and a business, you know, that, therefore I'm shit, blah, blah, blah. People on the spectrum don't really have that inner critic voice going all the time. They don't relate to you competitively. And as a result, it's incredibly healing to be around them. So the more you work with autistic people, the more you get addicted to working with autistic people because you get a break from your own ego. You get a break from your own psychological stress. There are many neurotypical people every year who throw themselves off bridges, etc., because of that little inner voice that's constantly telling them they're rubbish. What's also interesting is that if you spend time, like I have with indigenous tribal groups, you very quickly notice that the people who are the shamans, the healers, etc., in those communities almost always exhibit neuropsychiatric symptoms. Could be adult autism, epilepsy, schizophrenia, bipolar, etc. They usually display the symptoms at least to the degree that they would be medicated in our culture, but quite probably also institutionalized. And yet, in those cultures which are more practical than our own, where it's all about survival of what works and what doesn't, they have a really integral role as healers. One thing I've also noticed in, in the West is that it just is very healing to hang with autistic people because of this lack of ego. So it begs the question, who's the therapist? Should we be paying these guys 100 euro an hour to get a break from our own psychological pain? The answer is quite probably yes. In your trip to Mongolia and when you see parents that come to you with their children autistic, do you wish there was a cure for it or do you think this is the healing for um, them to understand? Yeah, well, there is no cure for autism any more than there's a cure for being Irish or English or male or, or whatever, I suppose, I suppose it's transgender, but 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's a personality type. It's, it's who the person is. There's no need to um, cure that. In fact, there are many gifts associated with it. The quiet ego that I was just talking about, the incredible memory, the extraordinary ability to focus, the often above average intellect. And these are marketable qualities that, you know, you might have to set up a different environment for that person, but that person is going to participate economically. There's no need to cure autism. There is a need, I think, for research into some of the things that cause the regressive forms of autism. For example, you know, the elephant in the room is always the vaccine question. Um, and now there is a whistleblower at the CDC in America who, Dr. William Thompson, who is saying, yes, we knew with the MMR vaccine that there was a link to autism and we've been lying to you and I can't live with myself anymore, etc. And there's a film to be made about this and I'm sure that this will enter the consciousness more and more. But do we need to cure autism? No, we don't. Do we need to see and respond to its gifts for a better society? Yeah, that we need to do. What's in the pipeline for the horse boy and the Isaacs and family? Well, the horse boy method and movement method continue to grow. As I said, our current weekly outreach is 20,000 families through our therapies. That's not anywhere near enough. I need to reach a million families. The only way to do that is to train more and more people in the methodologies that we do. The next few years are really going to be dedicated to getting those teams trained, fielding them, so that people who haven't, you know, had the good fortune maybe to run across the book of the film or stumble across it somehow can get the benefit of these approaches. And um, so that's our mission, really, to change the face of special education and actually even general education away from this notion the age-old notion that a child should somehow suffer in order to learn and to finally leave that in the past where it belongs and look at really much more effective ways of teaching. And we're very privileged to be able to be in the front line of this and that's what we're going to continue to do. Where can we find you, Robert, so we can help you achieve your, your goal and mission for autism? Um, and we run live courses as well, but 
for the for the equine therapy horseboyworld.com and for the uh, movement-based education kidsmustmove.com Robert, it was a pleasure having you on the show and sharing your stories, knowledge and experience. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It was an honour. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.